I'm going to introduce Dr. Ryan Mays. Um, there's a there's a lot I could say, and his CV and his publications are quite impressive. But I'm pretty much going to first of all congratulate him on his new job. So he's he's a professor of medicine and anesthesia, but he's ID critical care trained, and he's at Wake Forest currently after a very long career um, in the military with the Navy, mostly most of most of the time out of uh, San Diego. So Dr. Maves did his his undergraduate training and his doctor of medicine at a uh, University of Washington in Seattle before heading down south a little bit to San Diego to do his, his internship. And then after a, a couple of years, which I'm assuming are going to be service, did his, did his residency and stayed there for his ID fellowship, practiced ID for quite a number of years and held many leadership positions. And then in 2013, went back and did the critical care portion. So him, he like I, um, ID background, critical care trained, and he's going to talk to us about uh, meningitis and CNS infections in the intensive care unit. And I greatly appreciate him um, agreeing to do that for us today. So let's give him a warm welcome. Well, thanks a million, Dr. Woods, and I really appreciate the invitation. Um, this is a, a real pleasure. I've uh, enjoyed, really enjoyed, uh, you know, participating remotely via podcast with this uh, this educational session, and uh, recommended it to. Uh, a number of my fellows and colleagues over the years. So it is a, a real honor to be able to participate in it. So I'm going to share my screen here. Uh, let's see if we, this uh, this works. If after two years of Zoom, I've gotten this figured out. Does this, uh, how does this look to everyone? Is my screen sharing okay? You have my slides up? All right, how about now? I think it's coming. There we go. <clears throat> All right, good. excellent. In regular view, not speaker view? Uh, correct, it looks regular. Cool. Wonderful, wonderful. So uh, my name is Ryan Maves. I'm uh, uh, attending uh, attending position in the sections on critical care medicine and ID at uh, Wake Forest in Winston-Salem. I'm going to talk, we're going to talk today about neurologic infections in the ICU. This is a broad topic, right? So we're going to focus a bit on the practical aspects of it, of management of these patients uh, from uh, largely an antimicrobial standpoint, but with some points about some of the critical care specific issues but really a focus on medical management of these patients. Um, some of the things we'll talk about will be common syndromes. Others will be a little bit of exotica. We will not cover this entire whole gigantic topic in our limited time together, but if there are any further questions, I'm always available. I'm always happy to talk about this. So these are my disclaimers. I got some research support from, uh, or have recently received research support from Astra, Bacteria, Sound Pharmaceuticals, and Reviral. I'm on a couple advisory panels. I get some travel support from CHEST and SCCM. We will talk a bit about off-label medications. So when we talk about meningitis and cephalitis, these are syndromic diagnoses, right? There may be imaging differences. There may be laboratory differences. But fundamentally, the difference between these are syndromic. So when we talk about meningitis, we're talking about any inflammatory process involving meninges. This is usually but not always infectious in nature. Encephalitis is going to involve the brain parenchyma itself. And the way we distinguish between these is the presence of some manner of altered sensorium, altered mental status. Not simple delirium, which can happen with any obviously severe infection, but some focal change in behavior, something to suggest the parenchyma itself is, is directly involved. Uh, this is a key distinction because this affects our initial management at the bedside. Uh, in general, we want to culture early, but not at the expense of rapid antibiotics. This is true, just like it's true in septic shock. There is, by and large, little effective therapy for many, but not all forms of encephalitis. And acyclovir is a life-saving intervention for HSV and is something we need to be very quick about using empirically, particularly in the critically ill. 
So there are around 1.2 to a million cases of bacterial meningitis globally per year. This has changed a lot due to the advent of effective vaccines against pneumococci and meningococci. Somewhere, somewhere shy of 150,000 deaths reported annually, annually, excuse me, uh, but the morbidity burden after an acute disease infection is quite a bit higher. Um, if you look at all-cause meningitis, most of it is, quote, aseptic. Now, some of this is viral, and every now and then you'll see people use viral meningitis and aseptic meningitis interchangeably, but they are distinct. Viral meningitis is typically aseptic, but when we think about other causes of, quote, aseptic meningitis, we're thinking about fungal meningitis that may have negative cultures. We're thinking about tuberculosis, um, uh, HSV-1, which is a life-threatening disease, and then a number of the arboviral infections, and plus things like syphilis and HIV that can present, although rarely present, to an intensive care unit for those specific syndromes. So, you know, I, I think about this a lot when I'm, when I'm working on the ID consult service with residents. Um, it becomes very easy when we discuss infectious syndromes to, prevent, to present you with lists of organisms, right? Lists of organisms, lists of drugs. Fundamentally, the evaluation of, an inf of infect infectious diseases at the bedside is a question of syndromes and exposures, right? So when I'm approaching these patients, I'm thinking of them in terms of who are they, what have we done to them, and where have they been? And then, of course, how are they presenting? Are they presenting with an acute illness, a subacute illness, and so forth? So demographics and duration of symptoms are going to play a huge role in deciding how we approach these folks. So an acute infection, seriously ill patient, most of the folks we're likely to see, at least acutely in the intensive care unit, bacterial infections move much higher up the list here. The post-operative neurosurgical patient, we start to see things like staphylococci and gram-negative rods. Those almost never occur in the community-acquired setting. Um, Subacute symptoms where people have relatively rapid onset but are less sick, we tend to drift more into the community-acquired viruses categories of things like enteroviruses. Uh, historically, mumps was actually the most common cause of aseptic meningitis. Now, obviously, with near-universal vaccination, that's very rare. Uh, indolent and chronic symptoms or people have symptoms accumulating over the course of weeks to months. Things like tuberculosis, things like some of the endemic fungal infections, occasionally HSV2, which tends to be a milder disease but can relapse. Among the immunocompromised, of course, all bets are off. They can get anything. But I start to think specifically about listeriosis, particularly in the very ill. Syphilis can present as a meningitis. Toxoplasma is more of an encephalitis. And cryptococcosis, which classically is an HIV-associated illness. But really, the, nowadays, the great majority of it is seen in either immunocompromised patients, such as transplant recipients, or also a certain amount of it in, um, in the pure community immunocompetent setting, especially with the advent of something called cryptococcus gadii, which is a... Uh, no longer emerging infection, particularly in the northwestern parts of the U.S. Returning travelers, it gets very complex because of things like helminthic meningitis. Uh, malaria, severe malaria, has a certain incidence of gram-negative meningitis. And leptospirosis often presents with an immune-mediated meningitis in its uh, kind of secondary phases. All right, so thinking about things that we have to do. So history and epidemiology are critical in establishing our probable diagnosis early on. So if you've never left Maryland, you don't have coxie. So I, I have practiced the great majority of my career in Southern California, and we have a ton of coxie there. And there are times in my life when coxie kind of paid my mortgage. Um, that is not a thing I see very often here in North Carolina, where I currently practice, and it's probably not an disease you see a great deal where you folks practice. Uh, college students in dormitories, meningococcal disease moves way up the list, particularly if they're very ill. 
humoral immunodeficiencies, things like multiple myeloma, CVID, um, patients with basal or skull fractures, pneumococcal infections move way up. And pneumococcus has kind of become an opportunistic disease in the era of near universal pediatric vaccination and then older adults receiving uh, Prevnar and Pneumovax as well. And then lastly, duration of symptoms. If someone has four weeks of fever and headache without therapy and they present to your hospital alive, the odds of them having meningococcal disease is pretty low. That's not to say we don't necessarily treat them empirically for it. It's just worth to think when you're ranking your likelihoods, it's quite a bit less. All right, so when we look at bacterial meningitis, a little less than half is pneumococci, even today. And it's the most commonly identified cause of bacterial meningitis. Meninge is a close second. Uh, somewhere between 10 to 30, and it goes up higher depending on the population. Again, younger adults living in congregate settings, for example. H. flu meningitis is vanishingly rare. It was primarily a pediatric disease before, and now is, I haven't have, I've never seen a case myself, and I hope to keep it that way. Listeriosis is creeping up just partly because other forms of actual meningitis are decreasing, but in the right populations, it can be up to 20% of meningitis. Postoperative neurosurgical meningitis is, quite frankly, what I see far more often than community-acquired bacterial meningitis. That's where we see both coag negative and staph aureus, uh, as well as nosocomial gram negatives, E. coli, Kleb, Pseudomonas, and the like. Aseptic meningitis is going to be a variety of things, viruses, uh, bacteria, partially treated bacterial infections can be aseptic, spirochetes like Lyme encephalus, fungi, and then rickettsia a little less frequently. Usually, they'll have other clues if they have a rickettsial disease. Um, protozoans, such as amoeba, nigleri, and bellamuthia, these are more likely to be in encephalitis. And then drugs. It's worth to kick around the idea that there are non-infectious causes of meningitis. And again, these do not frequently uh, present to the critical care setting, but they do on occasion. So NSAID, sulfonamides, IVIG, and isoniazid all can cause drug-induced meningitis very much a diagnosis of exclusion, although it's gotten easier to exclude other causes in recent years. Rheumatic disease, such as lupus and CNS vasculitides, malignancies, metastatic carcinoma, uh, CNS leukemia and lymphoma, and then sarcoid off is sort of what you have left after a good infectious workup. So the pathogenesis is generally, at least for typical bacterial causes, a result of colonization of the nasopharynx followed by mucosal invasion. Uh, we do see direct inoculation after surgery or EVD placement. After a skull fracture, you'll have direct extension. Occasionally after untreated dental disease, um, really one of the arguments from a health equity standpoint about good dental care are children dying of brain abscess or meningitis as a result of lack of adequate dental care. Um, following systemic bacteremia, fermentocarditis or a urinary tract infection, pneumonia, that's pretty rare. Um, there is an entity called Austrian syndrome, which is a series of complications of pneumococcal disease. And then lastly, there are some predisposing conditions. So people without spleens, people with terminal complement deficiencies, uh, those of you who took the, medicine, the internal medicine boards, you may have had a couple questions about that. Corticosteroid excess, generally more than 20 milligrams a day of prednisone of the equivalent, and then uh, untreated HIV infection. So physical examination, you know, I don't know. When I was in medical school, there were a lot of comments about, you know, Koenig's and Brzezinski's and nuchal rigidity as physical exam findings. So the physical examination is obviously important in the evaluation of meningitis, but it is, but none of these signs are particularly valuable in terms of positive and negative predictive value. The positive predictive value of Koenig's is 27%, the negative is 72%. 
very similar for Brzezinski's sign, very similar for nuclear rigidity. The important thing is that the patient's symptoms play more of a role than any single physical examination finding. And there are very few life-threatening infections in critical care where I find a positive predicted value of 27% and a negative predicted value of 72% sufficient to make any decisions about. And I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Just bear in mind that these things are less useful. Skin findings, integumentary findings, those are very useful. If you see a vesicular rash similar to zoster, if you see this purpura fulminans on the picture, suggestive of usually meningococcal disease, occasionally pneumococcal disease, right? That is useful. That helps guide therapy. CTs before LPs. I think that it is probably pretty unusual that someone with suspected meningitis makes it out of an emergency department to the ICU without having had a head CT at some point or another. Um, that being said, is it all that useful and is all that important? Remember that it, particularly in bacterial meningitis, we are on the clock, just like we are with patients with septic shock, and time until active antibiotics significantly reduces mortality. And uh, so what are these red flags that really make us need imaging before? So that this has been evaluated. This is an older paper, but it's still true that um, you know, 15% of patients who, have, who undergo CTs with these sort of traditional red flags of new onset seizures, papilledema, focal deficit, significant immunocompromise, and moderate to severe impairment of level of consciousness, those people would undergo CTs, only 2.7% of, of them would have a lesion that contraindicated lumbar puncture. And really when it comes down to it is that impaired level of consciousness in isolation is not enough to preclude lumbar puncture. It doesn't mean you don't necessarily need to get imaging as part of their diagnostic evaluation to make sure they don't have some certain neurosurgical catastrophe that doesn't lead to mass effect. But someone who is merely delirious does not need imaging before lumbar puncture. All right? If they have a focal exam, but they have a CNS mass, prior CNS mass, papilledema, those are indications. And these are just some examples of that. Um, if you can find a fundoscope in your, uh, in your intensive care unit, I will be very, very impressed. But um, it's a nice example of papilledema and obviously a nice example of a mass uh, occupying lesion. So what's the difference, though? Like, what, does it, what kind of difference does it actually make? So this was a, a study done in Scandinavia uh, in about seven years ago where they changed their protocol for early treatment, minimizing delays until lumbar puncture, uh, and still trying to get good active antibiotics on board if they did need imaging. If they needed a CT, they got blood cultures, they sent them to the scanner. If the scanner permitted the patients to undergo LP, they LP'd them after antibiotics. And what they saw was improvements in time to treatment and improvements in mortality and improvements in the sequelae, which, as you see here, were still very common. But a reduction from about 50% to 40%, number needed to treat about 10, that's a pretty impressive number. And it just says, it, remember, we are on the clock with these patients. All right, so not to get too deeply into CSF interpretation, I just want to point out on this slide what are the critical things. One is that, you know, we do have to account for the number of red cells and we account for white cells. Uh, for bloody taps, uh, I, did, uh, I did an LP on an intubated patient in the ICU yesterday. That's always, uh, always a lot of fun to do. Um, you know, you have to account for, for every 700 to 1,000 red cells, you get one white cell. So if you have a particularly bloody tap, Make that calculation, deduct those number of white cells from your total white cell. If there is still a residual leukocytosis, we still need to approach that patient as though they have some inflammation or infection in their CSF. 
Uh, neutrophils tend to predominate in bacterial infections. Lymphocytes tend to suggest viruses or fungi. Eosinophils are rare. We'll talk about a couple of causes of eosinophilic meningitis. Protein greater than 1,000 in a tap that is not, frankly, purulent makes me think about TB or fungi, especially if there's a lymphocytic predominance. And then just always make sure you review the gram stain results. Gram-positive rods, think about listeria. And gram stains are going to be, pro are going to be possible in 80% of true bacterial meningitis. For cultures, even if they got antibiotics for lumbar puncture, it is still worth sending cultures. And even if that comes back negative, our more contemporary multiplex PCR assays are still tremendously useful. So this, so I think most institutions, and I, I don't know if yours do individually, but uh, we use a lot here at, at Wake, uh, the Biofire Meningitis Encephalitis Panel. This is a very sensitive and very specific test. The one thing that it doesn't pick up reliably is cryptococcus. So its sensitivity and specificity are only, well, its sensitivity rather, is really only about 50%. So cryptococcal diagnostics need to be done separately from that. But for other common pathogens, HSV, enteroviruses, uh, varicella, and most of the typical bacterial pathogens, the yield of this test is very good and can help you promptly de-escalate antibiotics if possible. We still want culture because culture is going to tell us more about, say in the case of pneumococcus, what the penicillin breakpoints are and gives us a better handle on how to modify therapy over time. All right, so these guidelines are old as dirt right now. They're 2004, um, uh, so they actually predate my ID fellowship. I believe they're in revision right now. But the basics are what are the core therapies for different pathogens once you have a specific diagnosis. For strep pneumo, it's VANC plus the third-generation cephalosporin until you get susceptibilities back. For meninge, it's ceftriaxone. For listeria, it's ampicillin, H-flu, ceftriaxone, E. coli, ampicillin. Those are, the latter two are largely pediatric diseases. Important thing to mention here is you see under alternative therapies, mirapenem comes up a lot. One of the challenges we have in is in the patients with reported beta-lactam allergies. I'll just point out a couple of things is that people who have a true penicillin allergy, the likelihood of them having a ceftriaxone allergy is somewhere in the low single digits, right? It's somewhere around 2% if even, to the point where I would argue that if you anaphylax to penicillin and I give you ceftriaxone and you anaphylax again, you don't have a cross-reacting allergy. You have two allergies, right? The same thing is true of carbapenems. If you are more comfortable giving carbapenems, carbapenem allergies do not cross-react with other beta-lactams in the overwhelming majority of cases. And it is key to make sure we give people the most effective drug available. So if you can't give them ceftriaxone empirically, consider a carbapenem, or just consider giving them ceftriaxone, assuming it's not Stevens-Johnson syndrome or something like that in their past history. All right, how about steroids? So dexamethasone, I think in COVID times, is a drug we all probably are giving out 20 to 30 times per day. Um, there is a lot of discussion about who should who benefits from adjunctive dexamethasone in bacterial meningitis. The groups for whom it is best supported are pneumococcal meningitis in adults, H. flu in kids, and then tuberculous meningitis, maybe varicella as well. There are three randomized trials that are placebo-controlled. There's probably a mortality benefit. There is definitely reduced neurologic sequelae, particularly hearing loss. The typical dose is about 10 milligrams Q6 for two to four days. It should be given up to 20 minutes before antibiotics. If someone got antibiotics into that patient and the steroids didn't go in first, then there's no point in adding it at that point. The, the, the stage has been set by then. 
Non-pneumococcal bacterial meningitis is probably not terribly effective. It is also probably not terribly harmful. So you can start it and then turn it off if it turns out the patient doesn't have pneumococcus, at least in an adult. But when do you give it, right? Because it's not like that culture is coming back anytime soon. The real triggers are going to be a CSF white count greater than 1,000, particularly 1,000 neutrophils, cloudy CSF, that was in the inclusion criteria of the initial trials, and then a positive gram stain. Those are things you can get back pretty rapidly. Obviously, a visibly purulent CSF should be a sufficient trigger to at least make you think about it. Uh, this was the trial by the Gantz and colleagues. This was in 2002. There have been a number of smaller follow-up studies observational. You can see this is a pretty small trial, only about 150 per arm, but still pretty good and is practice changing. Uh, what was the outcomes of those studies? Well, what they saw was that uh, unfavorable outcomes, meaning neurologic sequelae or death, uh, were significantly lower with a p-value of 0.006 and a relative risk of 0.5. In patients with pneumococcus, it did not meet significant in patients with meninge, but relatively low numbers. doesn't appear to be harmful at the very least. And then the mortality didn't meet, it meets significance, but such small numbers that it's hard to, I don't wish to overstate that mortality benefit. All right, so on to pneumococcus specifically. This is the most common cause of bacterial meningitis in the United States in most age groups. Neonates, it tends to be group B strep. Ceftriaxone is generally effective. There is some emerging beta-lactam resistance which requires vancomycin as part of your empiric therapy. This is usually a fulminant disease, usually very high CSF pleocytosis, usually very low glucose. That glucose is typically less than 25% of serum levels. And when you have it, it's a fairly quick, fairly slam dunk kind of diagnosis. When we look at meninge, this is a gram-negative diplococcus. This occurs sporadically and in epidemics. Very high mortality, even with appropriate therapy. And this is the one where, you're, where you see people losing digits, where you see overwhelming perperfulminans in their skin exam. I watched a guy's perperfulminans evolve over the hour that he was in the emergency department. Uh, very striking. He thankfully did well. Um, what are the risks for this? So travel, particularly travel to areas of sub-Saharan Africa. Congregate housing. So for us, that typically means college dormitories. Uh, it can also mean prison settings. It can also mean uh, military recruits. So I would pull, when I lived in San Diego, I would pull probably about two cases of meningococcal meningitis out of the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego per year. Typically, these were people who had terminal complement deficiencies, who have a greater risk of invasive Neisseria disease, but tend to do a little bit better because of uh, an attenuated immune response. Had one young man who managed to get meninge twice um, and survived. Um, when you see this, particularly in vaccinated hosts, you do need to entertain the idea of screening them for terminal complement deficiencies. Uh, I would do that in consultation with either your allergist, immunologists, ID, or both. It doesn't affect our critical care management, but it does affect their future management. So this is a, a child in... Uh, in Cairo when I was an ID fellow with uh, bad purple fulminans, who thankfully was very much on the mend. This is in the recovery phase. So when you look at meninge, there are annual epidemics in Africa. There's about one case per 1,000 patient years, up to one in 100 in young children in this belt, right around kind of going from West Africa to the Horn of Africa. Um, we also see higher relative risks in college dorms, military recruits, like I mentioned. And interestingly, the Hodge. So the Saudi government uh, in non-COVID times requires documentation of meningococcal vaccination to go on the Hajj to enter Mecca and Medina uh, because it's such a packed place. And a lot of people come from uh, regions of the world that are endemic for meningococcal disease. 
How about listeria? So this is a disease, this is very much a classic opportunistic infection. This is a disease that we see in patients with impaired cell-mediated immunity. So everyone over 50 is at some increased risk of listeria because above the age of 50, T-cell function starts to drift down a little bit. It's still pretty rare in the healthy population above the age of 50. Pregnancy, particularly the third trimester pregnancy, the initial peripartum period, patients, uh, patients dealing with alcohol dependence, chronic steroids. Um, what we see with this can be sort of a mixed meningoencephalitis because the bacteremia, unlike, say, pneumococcus or meninge, has a tropism for deep brain structures. Uh, and as a result of that, we see often what we call limbic encephalitis. Um, the drug of choice for this is ampicillin. Uh, we would add this to ceftriaxone and vancomycin in the appropriate population. In patients who are truly allergic to ampicillin, our options are to add trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole intravenously in kind of PCP-type doses, or just swap out ceftriaxone and ampicillin for meropenemis monotherapy, again, in combination with VANC until you get cultures back, or cultures or molecular testing back. Post-surgical meningitis tends to be staph and, staph and nosocomial gram-negatives, and our therapy is going to be directed to the pathogen, but our empiric therapy is typically going to be VANC and cefepime in my institution, Bank and Ceftaz or Bank and Miro, depending on your institutional uh, uh, your institutional risks and your institutional antibiogram. The problem with this is that, especially if you're drawing it off of ventric, is that everyone has a CSF pleocytosis. And then distinguishing between, okay, is this this colonization of an EVD that's been in for a few days, or is this a true infection? And teasing that out becomes very challenging. And one thing that that can offer some clarity for you is the use of some biomarkers. So CSF lactate greater than four uh, millimoles per liter has been proposed as a possible cutoff. That gives you a sensitivity and specificity of about 75% for both, respectively. If you move up to higher cutoffs, like six, you get more, um, more specificity at the cost of a little bit of sensitivity, right? But the CSF lactate of about four millimoles per liter is a pretty reasonable cutoff to help tease this out and at least get you to a point where you're comfortable with continuing or discontinuing antibiotics, at least enough to make a decision about. Procalcitonin has been studied in the CSF as well. Uh, bacterial infections in the CSF have an average procal of about four nanograms per milliliter. Um, there is a proposed cutoff of one nanogram per milliliter in the uh, 2017 IDSA guidelines, which is reasonable. I think you have to interpret all of this together, um, looking at both the CSF, the culture, and some of these biomarkers. Uh, it is certainly reasonable and appropriate to treat empirically up front while we get this data back, though. Now, viruses, most viral meningitis is mild and self-limited disease. We don't have to worry about it too terribly much in the ICU in and of itself, other than to mention that there are a few interesting entities that may at least draw your attention. So one is this recurrent benign HSV2 meningitis called molarase meningitis, just as genital herpes can recur in the genitalia. HSV2 can recur in the central nervous system. Uh, these patients will often be PCR negative after the first few attacks. Sometimes we put these people on, on suppressive valacyclovir, not terribly relevant for your practice. Arboviruses can be more of an issue, and depending on the part of the country you practice in, eastern equine encephalitis, we've had a number of significant outbreaks of that, and those patients can often have a very poor outcome. And there's not a lot of specific therapy available for them. Mumps and measles are largely historical diseases, although with... Um, Various, we'll just say, shifts in, uh, in vaccine enthusiasm in populations of our country. It is possible we will see more of this in future years. 
Then lastly, acute HIV. Acute HIV will occasionally present with a very severe aseptic meningitis, and that needs to at least be excluded in people who are thought of as at risk for HIV. And I'll tell you that my uh, my my residents back when I was in San Diego made a little a little um, meme of of me on rounds in the ICU saying indications for HIV testing in the hospital are presence of blood and or genitals. So take that for what it's worth. Be liberal in your HIV testing in a sick adult. So chronic meningitis is not really a, a well-defined concept, but what I'm thinking about when we talk about these are folks who have indolent fevers, night sweats, weight loss, prolonged development of symptoms. One thing we'll often see on imaging is a basilar meningitis with a specific enhancement around the basilar aspects of the brain. These will often present with SIADH and significant hyponatremia, which may confound your initial picture. One of the things on LPs for patients with, and the, the big three here would be TB, COXI, and cryptococcus. It's a very high CSF protein and, and occasionally a very high opening pressure. So high CSF protein, lymphocytic predominance, tuberculosis, crypto, COXI if their geographic exposures are consistent. These will frequently require some degree of neurosurgical, at least evaluation, if not truly intervention. So the picture on the left here, that round thing in the middle, uh, is a coxyspherial. That's kind of pathic mnemonic of coxidiotomycosis, if you ever happen to see it on a, uh, on a slide. Um, obviously, we'll see that from the lungs as well and other organs. And this is an older MRI just showing that increased enhancement of the skull bases, excuse me, suggestive of a basilar meningitis. <coughs> Scroll through that. So TB. Um, TB tends to be a delayed diagnosis in the United States. It tends to be a diagnosis that we make after we've excluded a lot of other things. But I do think we need to be pretty vigorous about our screening for it. TB, there's been a lot of discussion about COVID-19 and TB as sort of overlapping pandemics and how TB control has suffered as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I suspect we'll be seeing more tuberculosis in years to come as we regain lost ground if and when the COVID pandemic starts to wind down. So again, this is a subacute presentation, often with cranial nerve dysfunction, often with SIADH. It is worth getting cultures on this and sending it for AFB if you're suspected, but the truth is, is that the yield of culture from CSF is very low. It's very much like TB pleural disease for those of you who practice pulmonary medicine. TB PCR from the CSF is far and away the most rapid means of diagnosis. TB culture is maybe 50 to 80%, and that takes weeks, whereas PCR results can be relatively rapid and can allow you to initiate therapy quickly. Two things that are not useful in the evaluation of TB meningitis are PPDs and quantifurons. They do not add anything to the evaluation, at least not significantly. There are some studies looking at uh, CSF quantifurons. They may have some utility. I'm, I'm skeptical that they have added utility beyond what you get from a TB-PCR, however. Uh, chest X-ray findings, you will find them in about eh, somewhere between half and three quarters of folks. So the standard treatment for this is the same as the standard treatment for any tuberculosis, isoniazid, rifampin, PZA, and fambitol. Uh, there, in the last year or so, have been a couple of big CDC-sponsored international trials at shortened courses of therapy for pulmonary tuberculosis. Um, th those studies have not yet reached TB meningitis, and so we're still looking at traditional four-drug ripe therapy plus dexamethasone, maybe a role for fluoroquinolones, typically 9 to 12 months. Um, 
This is a treatment you'd be initiating, obviously, in consultation with your ID colleagues. So coxie. Um, <clears throat> coxie is a dimorphic fungus, one of the endemic fungi. I was actually very excited last week. I, uh, when, I was on, when I was consult attending, I finally diagnosed a case of blastomycosis, which means I've won endemic mycosis bingo. I've now diagnosed a case of five major endemic mycoses, so big day for me. So Coxie, uh, the gentleman on the right with the, with the mustache, Alejandro Posadas, was an Argentine physician who first identified Coxie uh, well over a century ago. Harold Chope was a med student at uh, Stanford who, in the kind of the heroic area of medical self-experimentation, accidentally gave himself Coxie in a laboratory experiment and helped clarify a lot of the pathogenesis of the disease. So Coxie, Imidus, and Posidaceae are two basically indistinguishable pathogens whose only, dis only difference is geographic and genetic. Uh, this, is a this is a disease of the southwest U.S. There's about 150,000 infections per year. About half of them are minimally symptomatic. Fewer than 5% develop disseminated disease, but those with disseminated disease are quite ill. In Coxie meningitis, this is just areas that are endemic for, uh, endemic for Coxie. Uh, there has been a steady increase in California, but this is true elsewhere of Coxie. Some of this is due to climate-related issues. Some of this is due to drought, rainfall, and other features like this. But Coxie lives in the soil. After long stretches of drought in the southwest, we don't see a lot of Coxie, and then it rains, and then we start seeing a lot of Coxie again. Uh, you get it by inhaling it from desert soil. So the people who are at risk for Coxie are typically people who have traveled to desert areas in the southwest Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, and West Texas, and adjacent areas of Mexico. Um, this, again, is the spherule. Um, two coxie spherule slides in, a, in one uh, critical care talk is probably more than average, but I think coxie looks really cool. So this is coxie. Um, so when coxie disseminates, the meninges is one of the most common sites. It's clinically very similar to TB meningitis, both in CSF findings and the like. Uh, there are certain ethnic groups and racial groups that are at increased risk for severe disease, and the reason for this is poorly defined. And actually, Dr. Steve Holland's lab at NIH is really one of the, the centers that is trying to define why is it that people of African descent, Filipino descent, are at such a significantly increased risk of extrapulmonary severe coccidioidomycosis. It is incompletely explained. Um, the challenge with this is that coccidioidomycosis requires lifelong antifungal therapy. And so the diagnosis of it is, is critically important because any discontinuation in therapy leads to adverse outcomes. So we typically diagnose this serologically. Just like with TB, the yield of culture is pretty poor. So what we tend to send is IgG and complement fixation titers from blood and serum. Uh, they are typically positive in about 90% of affected patients. Culture is about 50-50. Eosinophilia you see on occasion, but not all the time. Uh, there are nowadays coxie CSF and urine antigen tests, which can be very helpful. Those are run through MiraVista labs. Um, we do need HIV testing in these patients. We do need to see if they disseminate elsewhere. Complications that we face with these patients tend to be things related to either mass effect due to kind of coccidiomas with hydrocephalus and the like, or due to uh, a vasculitis stroke infarction due to inflammation of kind of adjacent brain parenchyma. Treatment for this is lifelong therapy with fluconazole. Often we have to give people, well not, not often, occasionally we have to give people adjunctive intrathecal amphotericin. So that involves placing an Amaya reservoir with neurosurgery and then injecting ampho directly into their CSF uh, until we start seeing clinical improvement and then gradually transition them over to high-dose oral fluconazole. 
without therapy, this is a lethal disease, 90% one-year mortality. Uh, mortality is still very high even with therapy. Uh, we have looked at adjunctive interferon gamma for refractory disease. That is of mixed benefit and pretty rough on patients, but it seems to help sometimes. Cryptococcus is a thing you're much more likely to see more of, particularly in, uh, you know, in the urban underserved populations where HIV infection is sadly still very common. Uh, and this is an encapsulated yeast. It is epidemiologically associated with bird droppings and spelunking. Uh, it does occasionally occur in immunocompetent patients. Uh, it, its incidence with HIV is extremely low with the effective uh, use of effective antiretroviral therapy. Uh, like I said, the BioFire panel is not very sensitive for crypto, so don't rely on it for that. But serum, serum and CSF cryptococcal antigen is very sensitive. In the olden days, we would do India Inc., where you take the CSF and it helps highlight this very thick polysaccharide capsule around the yeast cells. Part of the problem is that no one does this anymore, so lymphocytes in the CSF tends, tend to get mistaken as cryptococcus. It looks cool. It looks neat. Don't rely on it. Uh, initial treatment for this should always be amphotericin and flucytosine. Sometimes in resource-constrained settings, we'll just go straight to high-dose fluconazole. In the United States, the answer is amphotericin and flucytosine. Um, increased intracranial pressure is the major critical care issue, along with airway support and occasional hypercapnic failure, rarely pneumonia in these people. Early neurosurgical consultation is useful here. The other alternative is regular daily uh, lumbar punctures done serially. Uh, to relieve increased ICP, which can be life-saving, but is also not terribly practical, particularly in patients who are critically ill. Now, encephalitis, we move into a slightly different category. This is going to have a lot of overlap with meningitis in terms of etiology and presentation, and sometimes we'll hand wave this away and just call it meningoencephalitis. Um, there is very little specific therapy except for HSV and VCV, right, except for HSV and VCV. HSV is the most common cause of infectious encephalitis in most patient populations. And so patients who present with encephalitis, regardless of cause, until you find out what it is, if they have something obvious like toxoplasma, that's fine. But for the great majority of patients with encephalitis, empiric acyclovir is critical and absolutely the standard of care until you've ruled out HSV and VCV. So what are the risk factors for death? What are the reasons that patients with encephalitis will come to the intensive care unit? So this was a study done, uh, uh, it was a multi-center study um, performed, I'm sorry, this is not a multi-center study. This was actually done in the Hopkins system in 2013. Um, I guess that's multi-center. Um, looking at kind of what are the risk factors for death in, uh, in all cause encephalitis of whom about a quarter of them had HSV, right? So in this, Center, what we what the biggest risk factors for death were male gender, age greater than 65, cerebral edema on imaging, and status epilepticus, right? So patients who present in status, patients with cerebral edema on imaging, older patients, thrombocytopenia as well, but that uh, how to reconcile that's a little unclear. It may relate to delays in diagnosis and reluctance to perform lumbar puncture. Those are probably the big ones. Those are your sickest patients, and those are the ones we need to be the most aggressive in treating. So herpes encephalitis is a relatively low incidence in the U.S., somewhere between, somewhere around 0.3 cases per 100,000 person year. So basically one in a million people per year will get herpes encephalitis, right? But the untreated mortality of this disease is greater than 70%. And half of the survivors are going to have long-term neurologic sequela. This is overwhelmingly HSV-1. HSV-2 very rarely causes encephalitis. 
CSF PCR might be negative if you get a, if you find a patient very early in the course of their illness. So a negative PCR with a compatible imaging and a compatible syndrome, it may be a little premature to discontinue acyclovir until they've had a second one. Once you're several days into the course of their illness, uh, if their symptom onset came a few days before they got to the emergency department and got to your hospital, uh, that's probably a negative is probably negative. But if they just fell ill yesterday, repeat lumbar puncture might be necessary in a patient whom uh, for me, the high index of suspicion. Uh, there is a predilection for the temporal lobes in this, and that means that the presenting syndrome is often associated with behavioral and neurologic abnormalities, particularly, you know, hallucinations, seizure, changes in behavior for a few days prior to presentation. Most of these people are going to be febrile. Most of them are going to have headache. Um, CT of the brain, just a plain non-con, is only going to be positive or at least abnormal in about half of cases. But if you get someone into the MRI, 92% of them uh, by a series uh, done, a very nice series done in Iran in 2013, have clear MRI findings, and they're generally typical temporal lobe enhancement type findings. So much like, just like Dr. Shore discussed with you a couple of weeks ago about uh, time to active antibiotics in survival in hospital-acquired pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia, and as we all know about patients with septic shock, you know, time is money here in terms of our ability to save patients with HSV meningitis. Uh, this was a series, a uh, multi-center series with about, uh, about 500 patients in Turkey, Europe, uh, Northeast Africa. The time scale is a little different here. Uh, the odds of, a, of an unfavorable outcome in these centers, unfavorable meaning death or severe neurologic sequelae, patients who had who received intravenous acyclovir within two days of symptom onset, tended to have the lowest rate of adverse outcomes, whereas if you got to more than a week out of symptoms, 70% or more of these patients had an adverse outcome. Um, so although it's not, like you're, it's not like we're on the clock in the same way as we are in septic shock, nonetheless, there is a clear association between intravenous acyclovir and mortality. Given that IV acyclovir is such a safe drug, we use it liberally as part of our empiric management for patients with suspected encephalitis. This is from the same study, just looking at different outcomes based on GCS and based on age. You can see odds of unfavorable outcomes increase with age. Uh, odds of unfavorable outcomes decrease with higher GCS. So the more alert, the more interactive you are. The nature of these curves kind of cracked me up when I was uh, reviewing these slides the other day, is that apparently some people in the series have GCSs in excess of 15. I'm not sure what that means, if they can, like, see into the future or something, but nonetheless. All right, so varicella. So varicella overlaps a little bit here because, again, this is an acyclovir deficiency disease, right? We treat it very similarly. But clinically, its presentation is very different. It doesn't have the temporal lobe abnormalities, for example. And it's also much more heterogeneous in how it presents. So varicella zoster virus in the CNS can involve be a meningitis, can be a classic encephalitis, myelopathy is, uh, is not unusual, and then often is the cause of CNS vasculitis, uh, leading to syndromes that are primarily stroke syndromes due to thrombosis and uh, thrombosis and infarction, um, both arterial and venous. So this is most common in older patients. The, in, in series done out of uh, Denmark and then some observational stuff in the UK, the average patient is about 75 years old in these studies. There is an increased risk in the immunocompromised, though. There's a tropism for this virus for deep brain structures, so particularly the cerebellum, the brain stem, and some areas of the midbrain. So 
Uh, this is just a nice MRI from a, a series from 2008 or a review article in 2008 showing that enhancement in the cerebellum. Uh, it doesn't have to be there, but that is sort of one of its, shall we say, favorite places. There is often a temporal association with a zoster-like rash. So this is part of the reason for doing a good integumentary examination on patients with suspected neurologic infection, especially in older folks, is we're kind of looking for this, looking for something that looks rash-like, um, that looks shingles-like, that would support this. You don't have to have it, but it is very useful there, and it is present in the majority of patients. So asking about history of shingles-type syndromes, looking for vesicular lesions on their skin. Just like with HSV, the treatment is acyclovir, 10 milligrams per kilogram IV Q8, adjusting for kidney function, making sure they have adequate urine output. Once again, acyclovir is an incredibly safe drug, but there is a risk of crystallization in patients who have oliguria. So making sure they are either euvolemic and having adequate urine output or potentially even supporting them with diuretics if you need to. Unlike HSV, there might be a role for steroids here. Some authors do recommend 60 of prednisone for the first few days of therapy. Not really a lot of RCT data, but doesn't seem unreasonable. We occasionally do that with other shingles-type syndromes. And then, you know, there's discussion of IVIG. I'll tell you as an ID doctor that IVIG is what we give patients with suspected neurologic infections when we're out of ideas, but there may be a role. All right, this is an African giant snail. We're going to kind of drift into some more exotic things that we'll talk about just more for interest. So the African giant snail. So this is the vector of angiostrongulus. This is a cause of eosinophilic uh, meningitis. So this goes through, this is a nice kind of typical CDC slide where it goes through the life cycle. But basically, this goes through a cycle involving rodents, uh, kind of the common Norwegian rat, and the African giant snail, ingested by rats, passed in rodent feces, get into human food, we ingest it, and it leads to uh, translocation into the CNS and an and a eosinophilic meningitis. It can be quite severe. Uh, worldwide, uh, it tends to be in tropical areas uh, and a wide variety of places where it can be. Uh, in the United States, uh, like all unusual tropical pathogens, it tends to focus in Florida, but there are pockets of angiostrongyliasis you can find along the entire Gulf Coast and heading up the Atlantic Coast. So it is out there. Uh, I cared for a, a young man who uh, consumed an African giant snail on a dare and uh, got a bad case of angiostrongyliasis. Um, I was in the military for a long time. This is what happens to 20-year-old Marines when you leave them alone and don't, uh, don't supervise them appropriately. So the diagnosis is based on either serologic testing or PCR. This is done through CDC. If you have a patient with, shall we say, a compatible syndrome, compatible exposure history, and eosinophils predominate on their CSF, send the specimen to CDC for testing. This isn't a thing you're going to get in your lab. Radiologic findings are nonspecific. The therapy is no one knows, right? No one knows. Albendazole doesn't seem to help much. Steroids don't seem to help much. Serial piece for elevated ICP might be helpful. Time, patience, love, it's mostly supportive care. Uh, but the patients can be quite ill early on, and intracranial hypertension is an occasionally severe manifestation that can land these people in a situation where they need an ICU. Now, much more severe disease that is more common is a thing called amoebic meningoencephalitis. Classically, when we talk about this, we're talking about primary amoebic meningoencephalitis, which is due to neglaria. This is a human infection from freshwater exposure. This causes an acute, an acute fulminant disease in young, healthy hosts. There is a soil-dwelling, more insidious version to a thing called Bellamuthia. Uh, that causes granulomatous amoebic encephalitis. That is rare. These are both 
overwhelmingly fatal diseases, uh, and they tend to happen in young people. A typical scenario where you'd find one, someone is someone uh, water skiing and face planting into the water, and the high pressure shoves the amoeba that are living in the fresh water up through the turbiform plate into their CMS, and they have a rapid progression to death. Uh, swimming in uh, swimming in ponds and pools, things like that. Uh, this is not a terribly common disease, but I think it would be unusual to find someone who hasn't at least come across a case of this in the course of their career if they've been practicing for a few years. Tends to be in these states because these are states where people do a lot of water sports. That's why Minnesota is the northernmost state here. Uh, I was born in Minnesota. My, my aunts and my cousins still live there. And if you've ever been to Minnesota, you can drive about five feet before you trip on another lake. So places where warm weather and a lot of opportunities to do freshwater sports. Imaging findings are nonspecific, but we do often see these deep multifocal parenchymal lesions. They can look like a pseudotumor, like this image here. There may be hemorrhagic infarction. CSF and brain biopsy are the most useful for diagnosis. Um, PCR and antigen testing are available through CDC, but most of these are going to be diagnosed through CSF wet mount or through brain biopsy. Therapy is complex. There, the last time I updated this, which was uh, some months ago, there are only five reported survivors. The treatment for this is a combination of amphotericin, azithromycin, fluconazole, rifampin, dexamethasone, and miltefacine. Miltefacine is a drug we use for visceral leishmaniasis in northern India, so it's not a drug you're likely to find at like your neighborhood pharmacy. It has to be obtained through the CDC. Um, again, this is almost invariably a fatal disease, but there are, have been a handful of survivors, and since it predominantly happens in young people, we do try to be aggressive in their care. Oh, um, is there a reason other lake states, I'll address this at the end. Is, uh, so I was asked, is there a reason other lake states such as Wisconsin and Minnesota don't have the same amoebic meningoencephalitis risk? I am not certain, to be completely honest with you. This is just based on reporting. It could be that they're undiagnosed. Uh, it could be also that the Great Lakes don't have amoebae in any great amounts, that it's usually smaller bodies of water where amoeba tend to predominate. So West Nile is a flavivirus. This is a distant cousin of dengue, yellow fever, JEB, hepatitis C. Um, this is relatively more common on the West Coast right now. The primary risk factor for severe disease is age. Most cases are minimally symptomatic. 20% um, of people will present with fever. And then of those who present with, neuro, with uh, neuroinvasive disease, they will often present with a syndrome that is a combination of encephalitis and actually a polio-like acute flaccid paralysis. Um, so this is on the differential of things that would cause acute, uh, acute flaccid paralysis in the U.S., but particularly in older folks. Lymphopenia is relatively common. They may have some mild rash or mild hepatomegaly. Fulminant hepatitis and myocarditis may accompany severe disease in the very elderly, and certainly in people at high risk of death, this tends to be how it presents. There is sadly no uh, specific therapy for this right now. Um, a lot of the times the diagnosis is made is because of large numbers of bird deaths in a region, for example. Not a common disease in, in your part of the country, but we did see it a lot in, I guess, in our part of the country. But back in California, we would see a small handful of cases. Uh, there are a number of other arboviruses, and I'll just mention up here that uh, it's an alpha virus, but uh, eastern equine encephalitis have been a number of significant outbreaks in the U.S., uh, particularly in the eastern U.S., hence the name. Uh, these infect horses, and so a lot of the surveillance is focused on looking, identifying cases in horses. I'll move past that. All right, so just to mention, 
that there are non-infectious causes of fever in neurologically affected patients, patients presented with neurologic syndromes, and separating out infection from these syndromes is something we got to at least think about a little bit. This was a nice series done in JAMA Neurology about eight years ago, nine years ago, where they tried to identify what are features that would suggest that a person's fever was purely central, that is mediated by neurologically dysregulated temperature control. Well, it turns out that patients who have clear chest films, intracranial hemorrhage or brain tumor, fever onset within 72 hours of admission, those were all the folks who had the greatest likelihood of having a central fever. Obviously, we need to exclude infection. We need to exclude bacteremia in these patients. But just know that these are sort of the major risk factors. So particularly in, in my experience, it's largely been folks with subarachnoids or intraventricular bleeds or a combination of the two who are at the greatest risk for it. Um, Often these people will have a meningitis or encephalitis-like syndrome and may benefit from lumbar puncture depending if it can be done safely. All right, so toxoplasma. <clears throat> so toxoplasmosis is relatively rarer than it used to be nowadays. Um, this is a protozoan distant cousin of malaria, uh, which causes encephalitis in the setting of advanced misdepression, historically HIV-associated. Uh, most of the cases we've seen around here recently have been in transplant recipients. Uh, it can also cause pneumonia. It can also cause myocarditis uh, and retinitis. This is largely diagnosed by, ser by serology and by typical imaging. You can get PCR off of the CSF, but um, that's not as widely performed. In, uh, in patients living with HIV infection, we'll generally base it on serology and the very typical imaging uh, uh, with kind of rounded uh, ring-enhancing lesions around the midbrain, the basal ganglia. Uh, so the historical treatment for this was pyrimethamine uh, and sulfadiazine. Uh, if any of you guys remember the, uh, the scandal with pharmaceut uh, a pharmaceutical startup a few years ago from the guy who spent several million dollars buying a one-of-a-kind one Wu-Tang Clan album? Anyways, as a result of that, the price of pyrimethamine skyrocketed. It turns out that IV, IV Bactrim, that IV trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole works perfectly good for this disorder. And really, most of us have shifted to treating with that instead of, you know, mortgaging our patients' houses to get pure methamine. All right. Um, there are a few, again, causes of aseptic meningitis and returning travelers. It's worth knowing about brucella. This is relatively common in Middle Eastern countries, it's relatively common in some parts of Latin America. The association there is a livestock exposure, so people who work with goats, with cattle. Leptospira, more disease of the tropics. This is typically self-limited. You will likely make this diagnosis after the patient is recovered. Androstrongylus, we talked about. Toscana virus is an emerging uh, cause of viral meningitis in southern Europe, like Italy. And then Lyme disease is a thing that we do find on occasion, I will say that the cases of suspected Lyme disease outnumber true Lyme disease by quite a bit, but it is worthwhile considering, and we do have specific therapies, mostly ceftriaxone, uh, devoted to that. For suspected neurosyphilis, um, there are a number of, of assays, typically CSF, VDRL, and some sort of exposure history. So if we have to kind of wrap it up, like what do we do with these people when we first assume their care? So. Suspected bacterial meningitis means droplet isolation for 24 hours, meaning 24 hours of ceftriaxone, or until Neisseria is excluded. Patients with suspected meningitis get put into droplet isolation all the time. Why? Meninge. It's for Neisseria meningitis. Um, they are no longer infectious after 24 hours of ceftriaxone, though. Now, that being said, in COVID times, 
we're basically the entire hospital is in droplet isolation all the time. So it doesn't affect us too much nowadays. Empiric meningitis for, excuse me, empiric antibiotics for community-acquired meningitis is vancomycin, cefriaxone, adding ampicillin for empiric listeria coverage if they're over 50, immunosuppressed, pregnant, or working with that alcohol use disorder. Continue all of these until you have either biofire panel results or cultures are negative for 48 hours or you've made an alternate diagnosis, right? And then we start peeling stuff back. Special situations, trauma, uh, EVD, vancomycin, plus some appropriate therapy directed at nosocomial gram-negative rods, including pseudomonas. This is ceftaz, cefepime, miropenem in most centers. Uh, piperacillin does enter the CSF. Case of Bactam does not, so, so zosin will not work. Um, immunocompromise, again, the same basic drugs, but it's vancomycin, cefepime, and ampicillin in combination. When I say immunocompromised, what do I mean? Basically, the equivalent of 20 milligrams of prednisone per day for an extended period of time. Someone with a transplant, uh, particularly recent transplants, basically anyone who needs PCP prophylaxis, right? That would be the person for whom would fit this category. True cephalosporin allergies, you can do VANC plus trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or VANC plus Miro. And then if someone gets antibiotics before lumbar puncture, still send culture, still send for a molecular panel if you have that available to you at your center. Um, suspected encephalitis, adding a cyclovir to this, uh, to this uh, package of empiric therapies. If suspicion is high for HSV and BZV despite initial negative testing, continue acyclovir and repeat their LP. Maintain good urine output for acyclovir. Who needs steroids? Children with H flu, adults with pneumococcus, maybe TB, maybe varicella. Fungal meningitis. The short answer is consult ID. If you think they have flu, we put the, if they think they have coxy, we put them on fluconazole, usually 800 milligrams a day or more. If you think they have cryptococcus, it's amphotericin and flucytosine. But this is a case where really infectious disease consultation is mandatory. Uh, critical care and neurosurgical uh, considerations. Just see that I misspelled considerations. Uh, management of increased ICP, obviously osmotherapy, EBD placement if necessary, head of bed greater than 30 degrees, general avoidance of IJ catheters. Uh, my, uh, my neurocritical care attending when I was a critical care fellow was a, uh, a Hopkins grad, so I assume that a lot of her, uh, uh, her feelings about IJ catheters are derived from Hopkins. Uh, cryptococcal meningitis frequently requires serial LPs or BP shunting or EVDs. Uh, surgical therapy as necessary for brain abscess. We didn't get into brain abscess that much uh, in this. Uh, subdural lymphoma, same story. Steroids, like I said, pneumococcus, TB, maybe VZV, um, but not much else. Uh, and in general, for control of ICP, steroids for most neurologic infections is generally something we'd recommend avoiding. Doppel precautions for the first 24 hours. Post-exposure prophylaxis is a, a separate topic for patients with close contact of those with uh, meninge. Uh, generally, from a medical personnel standpoint, that's going to be people performing CPR, people involved with intubation. So the intubator, respiratory therapist, uh, people in the room during a code, the people performing bronchoscopy, those are the ones who need it. The person who came in and, you know, the phlebotomist in the morning probably doesn't need meningococcal prophylaxis. Uh, that can be with rifampin or aquinolone. Uh, vaccination is not a thing we use as post-exposure prophylaxis, but is generally effective at reducing the incidence. I think I am right at 60 minutes, so I'm going to stop there.
this is my email address. Feel free to drop me a line. It is, uh, it's a real pleasure to talk to you all today. Um, the little picture in the upper right is just there goes my pager right on time. The upper right is just saying that I know that uh, if you guys are anything like us, the pandemic is, uh, is starting to wear on you. It's just a reminder to myself, but also to others, that all pandemics end eventually. Hopefully, we're closer to the end than we are at the beginning. Stay safe, and thank you all. And I'll stick around for a few if there's any questions.